Okay, everyone, let's go ahead and get started. If you don't mind, it's good to see you this evening. I would like to go ahead and get started just a minute or so early because we do have a lot of stuff to talk about tonight. This is going to be a, a lot going on in this study. So we need uh, to go ahead and jump into it. Hope you've had a, a good day. I'm glad you're here safe, and I'm glad you're here to study. Remember the same rules apply that we've been doing in these classes, so keep those things in mind. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, uh, and then we will jump into the class. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you, Father, for uh, this opportunity you've given us to be here in this place safe and sound to be able to study and grow and learn more about Jesus and the things he went through during his last week before uh, he was crucified and raised from the dead. We pray, Father, that you will bless our efforts. Pray that you will bless our study tonight, Father. We pray that you will continue to be with our country, uh, be with our leaders. Uh, we pray for uh, this this trying time we're going through during this pandemic, that you will continue to bless us and keep us healthy and safe, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take out your Bibles and go to Mark chapter 11. Majority of our study tonight, it will come from Mark, from Mark's account. Mark does a very interesting thing with this topic we're going to study tonight. This evening, we're going to continue with the third lesson in our series of lessons about the last week of Christ. If you are a member of this congregation, you should hopefully have one of these books. If you don't have a book and you're a member here, please raise your hand. We'll get you a book. If you're visiting, we may have a copy of just a lesson uh, for you tonight if you do want a copy of the lesson. Uh, but we do, we are going to go through this book. We're going through this book over the next few months. And uh, we're going to be on lesson three, lesson three tonight. Carolyn gave me a, a good idea uh, that I try to uh, think about and ponder on and put together on a chart. Uh, I'm going to start each class with this chart here that will give you kind of a an overview or just reminder of what's going on on each on each particular day of the last week of Christ. We start on the Saturday, the Saturday before the crucifixion. Remember on that Saturday, that's when we have information about what happened at the house of Simon the leper. Remember Jesus was there with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Mary anointed the body of Jesus with some very expensive perfume, and Judas gets upset because Jesus rebukes him when Jesus tells Judas to leave her alone because she had done a good deed. Judas uh, tries to pretend he wants her to sell the, the proceeds of the perfume and give it to the poor, but he really was a thief. He was stealing from the treasury, and Jesus smacks him down, and he gets very upset. That really prompts him to want to wanna betray Jesus. So that's a key event that takes place in Bethany. On Sunday, what we studied this, this past Sunday, uh, the key events there are the entry or the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, and Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Now, tonight, 
we're going to look at what happened on Monday. But before we do that, and the events on Monday include the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. Before we look at that, let's make a few more observations just very quickly about what happened on, on Sunday. So a few questions that some folks may have is, one, how did the Jews, did the Jews count their days? How did they tell time? How did they determine what a day was? That's a question that some folks may have, and I think it's a good question, so let's talk about it. I want you to go in your Bible to Matthew chapter 14. Keep your finger, your place in Mark 11, but go ahead and turn to Matthew 14. I want to show you something there. It is true that unlike us, the Jews counted their days differently. Their days went from sunset to sunset, okay? So it would go from 6 in the evening to 6 the next evening, from sunset to sunset. Now that is something that Jews still do to this day. When I was able to go to Jerusalem a few years ago, uh, when the Sabbath day came, when it's Friday at 6 in the evening came, everything shuts down uh, in Jerusalem as far as where the Jews are. Uh, the elevators even shut down. Everything shuts down starting at 6 o'clock on Friday. But when 6 o'clock the next day comes in the evening, when Saturday at 6 o'clock comes, guess what happens? It all opens up again. Elevators start working. It's like when you have, if you have, uh, like I did, grow up with roaches in your house, when you turn the light on in the kitchen, what happens? They start going everywhere. Well, that's how it is in Jerusalem with the Jewish people to this day. And so the Jewish day goes, and for the purpose of this study, that's how we're calculating these days from sunset to sunset. Now, Matthew, in his account, and it's important to understand that it's hard to be 100% on a lot of this because the Bible doesn't say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, that language like we use. You have to look at some of the, the hints that are given, and, but you also have to keep in mind the targeted audience of each writer. Mark, in his account, is writing more to a Roman audience. Luke is writing to a Gentile audience, so they're not going to look at days in the same kind of way, okay? Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. It's very clear he's doing that, especially when you consider how he uses prophecy so much. But let me give you an example of how the Bible uses time for the Jews and how they did their days. In Matthew 14 and verse number 22, it says, Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, when the evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night... He, referring to Jesus, came to them walking on the sea. Notice the language Matthew uses there. The fourth watch of the night. The Jews 
They counted their nights by watches. Watches. So Matthew's clearly writing to a Jewish audience here. A Roman audience would not have been as familiar with this. A Gentile audience would not have been as familiar with this. The fourth watch of the night. If the new day starts at sunset, so you the, the first watch of the night for the Jews was from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. The second watch was from 9 p.m. to midnight. The third watch was from midnight to 3 a.m. And the fourth watch was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So that means somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus walked on the water. That, to the Jews, was the fourth watch of the night. And so these are just little hints the Gospels give us as to days and how the Jews counted their days. And so just be mindful of that. We're, we want to look at our timeline here from a Jewish perspective to the best way we can. And they counted their days from sunset to sunset. Now, another question some may have is this. Then we need to get into our new lesson. Why did the Jews reject Jesus as the Messiah? Why was Jesus rejected as the Messiah? I think that's an important question to consider, especially when you think about what happened on Sunday and Jesus is given this great welcome into the city of Jerusalem. Well, the reason why the Jewish leaders in particular rejected Jesus as the Messiah, even though he did miraculous things to confirm his identity, was because he was not the Messiah that they wanted. He was not the Messiah that they pictured to come into the world. They had a very distorted view of the Old Testament. You see, they were not expecting someone like Jesus to be the Messiah. They were not expecting a Messiah who came from Galilee and was going to come. He was a carpenter and he was coming in to talk about some spiritual kingdom and how he even came to save Gentiles. No, they wanted a Messiah like David, King David. They wanted somebody to come in, a great military leader, and he was going to set up an earthly kingdom. And he was going to liberate them for the, from the Romans, kind of like Judas Maccabee did during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. That's what they were anticipating. That's what they wanted. But they were wrong about that. They were wrong about what the Old Testament taught about the Messiah. They had a wrong view of the Messiah. Now, I'm only bringing that up because that may to a degree explain this triumphal entry. You know, maybe as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, the Jews are thinking this is our time. This is the one. Because of what we saw with Lazarus, this is the one who is going to miraculously liberate us from the Romans. He's going to give us back our city. We're going to rebuild the, the temple. We're going to have our temple again all to ourselves. Everything is going to be okay. That's maybe what they were anticipating on Sunday. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus did not come to establish an earthly kingdom. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom. A spiritual kingdom that would even include Gentiles. So just keep those things in mind. And so on Sunday, the Lord rides on a colt with the mother with them as well, the donkey, from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And as he comes into Jerusalem, he is praised by the Jewish people. Many Jewish people welcome him with palm branches in the road, their coats thrown out into the road. They, they say, Hosanna, Hosanna. They praise him as the king of Israel. 
Jesus is given this great and glorious welcome into Jerusalem, and he's certainly worthy of that. But once he entered into Jerusalem, remember, he weeps. He weeps upon entering into Jerusalem. And the reason why he weeps is because he knew that Jerusalem was going to be judged by God. The Jewish people had rejected him for the most part. And because of that, God was going to punish them. God was going to do away with them as a nation. In 70 A.D., 40 years from then, God was going to allow the Romans to destroy them and destroy their city and their temple. Jesus knew these days were coming, and these would be terrible days. Jesus, Matthew 24, says that the days of the destruction of Jerusalem were days like the world had never seen and would never see again. It was that bad. Jesus then goes to the temple once he gets into Jerusalem, and after probably spending some time teaching in the temple, the temple that will one day be torn down, that Jesus said, he then later returned to Bethany and probably stayed again at the home of Simon or Mary or Martha and Lazarus. Now tonight, in this study, we want to talk about, we want to talk about what happened on Monday. We're going to Monday now, the, the next day. The Passover clearly occurs on Thursday evening. Okay? And so we count backwards. We count backwards from there. And we find out what happened on Sunday, and we find out what happened on Monday. And so, as far as tonight, the, th the things we want to look at, the big things, are the cursing of the fig tree. That is a big event there. Very big event. The cursing of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple, Jesus cleanses the temple, and the judgment of God on Israel. The prediction of the judgment of God on Israel. Jesus already wept about this, and he's already given hints of this, but he's going to go into more detail as to why this is going to happen, why God will do away with the Jewish people as far as identifying them as a nation and a special people unto himself. So go back to Mark now, please, and let's read some scripture. Let's look at what Mark says here in Mark 11, beginning with verse 12. Okay, so after Jesus is given this great welcome into the city of Jerusalem, and after he goes back to Bethany with the apostles, according to verse 11, in verse 12, it says the next day, this is the next morning, when he had left Bethany, he's leaving Bethany, spent the night there, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise to the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking. They're upset. They began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When the evening came, they would go out of the city. So there's, that's Monday. Because verse 20 says, now you got the next morning. So you got Tuesday coming up. So 
let's talk about a few of these things here. Bob Waldron, who's a friend of mine, and his book, Sir, We Will See Jesus, in case you got confused, in case you were confused about how Matthew and Luke record this. Brother Bob Waldron says this, and I think it's worthy of consideration. He says, Matthew and Luke tell of the cleaning of the temple topically with Jesus' triumphal entry. In other words, when you read Matthew and Luke's account, it may appear that all this the triumphant entry and the cleansing of the temple happened on the same day. That's how it may appear when you read Matthew and Luke's account. But Mark, as it shows, it actually occurred the next day. It occurred when Jesus comes right into Jerusalem. Remember, he goes into Bethany and he stays the night. So that's going to be Monday. The cleansing of the temple was an application of messianic authority. It took place once, if you remember, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? John 2. And now again at the close of his ministry. So his ministry is really kind of bookended with the cleansing of the temple. He does it at the beginning. He does it at the end. And it occurred the day after the triumphal entry, once you read carefully Mark's account. And so remember, Jesus is going in and out of Jerusalem each day up until the crucifixion. He's going from Bethany, which is just a couple of miles to the southeast of the city of Jerusalem. He, so Bethany would be kind of over in this direction. He passes through the Mount of Olives. The Garden of Gethsemane is over here at the base, goes across the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem, in and out every day, all the way up until Friday. This is a view again of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. This is how Jerusalem looks today. This is in the Mount of Olives. When I was able to go to Jerusalem, one of the places we went was the Mount of Olives. And as you can imagine, there are a lot of olive trees there. You see over here Jerusalem again in the city of David. There again is a view of where the temple would have been from the Mount of Olives. And so this is giving you an idea of where Jesus is going and where, how he's traveling each and every day up into the crucifixion. Now, let's look at these questions here and let's see how much we can get. One of the things I want to do with this study is, is um, put it in such a way where we could kind of take our time and not feel rushed each class or whatever. We don't get done tonight with this. We can, we can continue it on Sunday because there's a lot, to, a lot to talk about with this. Question one, what did Jesus do when he became hungry on Monday? Well, the scripture tells us in verse 13 that as he's leaving Bethany, he goes to a fig tree. He goes to a fig tree. So he's traveling, he's hungry, and he sees a fig tree. This is interesting because with this we see uh, some of the humanity of Jesus, don't we? We see the humanity of Jesus. You know, throughout the gospel, we get hints of the humanity or these little different things, these details, I'm sorry, of the humanity of Jesus. We find times when he's sleepy and when he sleeps. We find times when he's tired. We find times when he's weak emotionally. We find times when he's hungry. These are all things that we have, qualities that we possess as human beings. We get sleepy. We get tired. We get weak emotionally. We cry. We get hungry. Jesus, remember, is fully God and fully man at the same time. 
And so he's hungry on this occasion. We see a great example of the humanity of Jesus. Question two, when he went to the fig tree, what was he expecting to find? He was expecting to find something. Something was supposed to be there. Something was supposed to be there, according to verse 13. But when he went there, what did he find? Nothing but leaves. Something was supposed to be there. Something was supposed to be there besides leaves, but the Bible says it's not the season for figs. So wait a minute, Jesus, you're the creator. Don't you know this? Don't you know it's not the season for figs? So why are you going to the fig tree expecting to find some figs? I think that's a good question to think about. So let's talk about it. To properly be able to answer this question, we got to understand some things. We got to understand some things. We got to go outside the Bible a little bit to try to figure this out. We got to know some things about figs. What do you know about figs? If you do a simple Google search on figs, if you just do a simple Google search on figs, you learn some things about figs that every fig farmer knows. Every fig farmer knows that the common fig tree beats out two kinds of figs. The common fig tree produces two kinds of fruits each year. It produces the Bereba and the standard figs. The Bereba and the standard fig. Everybody who grows a fig tree understands that. The Bereba, the Bereba always comes first. It always comes first. The Bereba usually comes around March and April. When did Jesus around, what time did he, of the year did he die? March or April. By March or April, the spring. So the Bereba always comes first. It comes around March and April. It comes when the tree is putting out its leaves. The Bereba comes when it is not the season for figs. That is, it's not the season for the standard fig that comes much later. The Bereba comes around the time Jesus is in Jerusalem. The Bereba is edible, but it is often ignored. Usually, the Bereba was eaten by either animals or poor people. And it didn't taste very good. Had a nut-like taste to it. Wasn't something that was pleasurable to eat. You would only really eat if you were really hungry. So usually it was just animals and poor people who ate the Bereba. The Bereba grew on last year's shoot. It appears when it is not the season for figs. It appears during the time, it only appears during the time when the fig tree is putting out leaves. That's the only time when it appears. When the Bereba doesn't grow, guess, won't, guess what else won't come with it? The figs won't come. Got to have that Bereba first. That makes sense. The Bereba comes first, and the Bereba always comes during the time of the spring, when the leaves are sprouting on the fig tree, and if you don't get that Bereba, 
That means you got a fruitless tree. You're not going to get those standard figs. The Bree book, the Bree book, I'm sorry, is not the main product. It's not the main thing you want. It only proceeds the main product. It's a forerunner. It's a forerunner for the main product. If it doesn't appear in the springtime, then it is automatic. According to the laws of science, it is automatic that that tree won't produce the standard figs. And the standard figs usually came out sometimes uh, about a couple of months later, but it could be as late as five months later. But you got to get that breba first. That breba must come first before the standard figs. The standard fig, the standard fig, the main thing that you want, it tastes much better than the breba. It usually begins to ripen two to five months later after the breba appears. The standard fig, and for those of you who've had standard figs, you know they're rich, they're sweet, they're juicy. They are the product of a fruitful tree. You get the standard figs, once you get the breba, and all that together makes a fruitful tree. And so since it was, since it wasn't the season for figs, and since the tree had leaved out, remember the Bible says that tree had leaved out, right? That means that when Jesus came to that tree, and it's the springtime, the fig tree's leaving out, leaving out, that means he had every reason to expect something there, shouldn't he? What should have been there? The breeze should have been there. It should have been there. Since the tree had leaved out, the Breba should have been there. Since it wasn't, that meant that this tree Jesus went to was a fruitless tree. It was a fruitless tree. Was it going to produce those standard figs later on? And so I just want to give you that background of that. I want you to think about that as we now continue to move on with these questions. This is important, not so much because we're trying to learn about figs and fig trees, but it's because Jesus is going to teach something with this. Our Lord is doing something. He knows what's going on, but he's using all of this to accomplish a purpose. So question three, what should Jesus have found on the fig tree during this time of the year? The Breba should have been there. It should have been there, but it wasn't. And so Jesus then curses the tree. The poor tree got cursed. It's already a fruitless tree. Then it, get cursed. it gets cursed by Jesus. He curses the tree. And was Jesus just mad because he couldn't get anything to eat? Was he just mad at the tree? No, he curses the tree for a reason. Question four, why did he curse the tree? He cursed the tree to teach a lesson to his disciples. He cursed the tree to, to represent something. He cursed the tree not to teach a lesson about figs and fig trees, but he cursed the tree to teach his disciples a lesson about the nation of Israel about the Jewish people, about the fruitlessness of the Jewish people. Mark strategically, did you notice this? He strategically emphasizes this in his account. Let me show you a few things. We go back to Mark 11. Notice how the incident with the fig tree bookends a very important event. You look at verses 12 through 14, that's the introduction of the fig tree, the cursing of the fig tree. 
Jesus cursed the fig tree. But then you go to verses 20 through 21, and the next day, the, the tree is, is just withered up, right? 20 and 21. So what's sandwiched there? What's in the middle of that? Ah, the cleansing of the temple. That's exactly right. Mark's doing this on purpose. He bookends, he bookends the cleansing of the temple with the fig tree. He's doing that on purpose, I believe. You see, what Mark is doing here is this. It is my understanding that when Jesus curses the fig tree, he's cursing it because he's teaching the disciples a lesson about how wicked and corrupt and fruitless the nation of Israel had become at that time. He closes it in verses 20 through 21 by showing that what Jesus did, his miracle, was a legitimate miracle. That fig tree had withered up. That was the nation of Israel. That represented Israel. But Mark doesn't just do that. He also gives us an example in the middle of the sandwich, the meat of the sandwich. He gives us an example as to how corrupt Israel had become. Jesus cursed the fig tree. The fig tree represented Israel. And to show you why they were such a fruitless nation, to show us why they were so corrupt and so wicked, he says, look at what they're doing to the temple. Look at what they're doing to the house of God. Look at how they turn the father's house into a place of business. Mark sandwiches, sandwiches the fig tree cursing with the cleansing of the temple. It's all tied together. It's all tied together. Mark says, Jesus says the fig tree represents Israel. And to give you an example of how fruitless they had become, look at what they've done in the temple. Do you see that? The fig tree incident bookends the cleansing of the temple. This is on purpose. And so, question five, what incident occurs after Jesus cursed the fig tree? Well, the cleansing of the temple. The cleansing of the temple does. That's the key event. Jesus knew ahead of time what he was going to see when he went to that temple. He already knew. But he uses this fruitless fig tree as an example to teach something that maybe his apostles didn't understand at that moment, but they would understand later. They would understand later. What did Jesus find going on in the temple? What did y'all write for that? What did he find going on in the temple? Yeah, business transactions. And that what it says when we go back and look at Mark 11, it says, verse 15, buying and selling. Over, and, and Jesus was upset. He overturned the, the money, the money changers, uh, and the seat of those who were selling doves. You know, it is interesting how they're making all this money in the temple selling animals. Why would they be selling animals? That's right, the sacrifices. If you are a Jew, and remember, Jews are, are dispersed all throughout the Roman Empire at this time, okay? So when Passover came and Pentecost, they would leave from wherever they were. They could have been in just way, way out there in different parts of the Roman Empire. They're traveling with their spouse, with their kids, with their parents maybe. And you don't want to travel with a bunch of animals, do you? You don't want to do that. What would be the, better, what would be the easier thing to do? To buy the animals when you get there, right? So this was a time where if you were in Jerusalem, and you're selling animals, you're going to make some money. This is the time when people are going to come to Jerusalem. They're going to buy their sacrifices when they get there. They don't want to travel with the goat. 
They don't want to travel with, with these the bulls and these different animals. So they're going to do it in Jerusalem. So these merchants and these money changers, you need money changers because in order to pay the temple tax, you need Jewish currency. You don't have that if you're coming from somewhere else around the Roman Empire. So all this is being done to the temple. It wasn't a sin for the people to buy their animals in Jerusalem. It wasn't a sin for them to exchange the money. The sin was is where they were doing it. They were doing it at the temple. They were doing it at a place that was supposed to be for worshiping God, offering sacrifices to God. It wasn't supposed to be done there. But these wicked men are taking advantage of a situation. Do you see that? So that's what Jesus sees. And when he sees that, he responds with righteous indignation. Jesus doesn't sin here. Jesus is sinless. He turns over the tables. He runs the animals out. He turns over the tables of the money changers because he has got righteous indignation. He is angry about this sin, but he's not just angry. He does something about it. He doesn't just go and complain to his apostles about, look at what they're doing. He cleans up the mess. He cleans up this sin that's going on. Now, there are some differences between John's account or what John says about the first temple cleansing and the cleansing here. Some suggest, and maybe you're one of them. If you are, then uh, I want to argue with you about it. I, I, I tend to think differently, but if you think that John's account is the same as this account, that's, that's, that's fine. That's your prerogative. Some do think that John 2 is taken, it's not in chronological order. That is the same event of what you find here in Mark and Mark's, Mark's account. I tend to think they're two separate accounts. I tend to lean towards Jesus cleanses the temple twice, once early in his ministry and once later towards the end. That, that's what I, that's where I lean towards personally. And the reason why I, I think that it's because I, I see some differences here, and maybe you saw these differences. In the first time in John 2, 13 through 22, Jesus was upset, and he cleanses it, and as he does it, he says that he had turned his father's house into a place of business. Remember that? He said, you turned my father's house to a place of business. But this time, the second time here, there's more going on, it appears. In verse 17 of Mark 11, he says they had turned his father's house into a what? A robber's den. So it appears that what they're doing this time is even more wicked than what they were doing back in John 2. Jesus says here there's some, some corrupt stuff going on. The first time it was just using the temple in an unauthorized, an unauthorized way. Now it is not only are they using it in an unauthorized way, but they are cheating people. They've turned it into a robber's den, Jesus says. So that's something just to think about, that it seems to be a couple of uh, a difference going on in the accounts, uh, the first, between the first cleansing and the second. Now, I want to put question eight and nine together. And I know this is a lot, but I hope it's making sense. I re I mean, you're, you're listening so well, and I really appreciate it. You really are. What lessons can we take away from the fig tree cursing and the cleansing of the temple? I'm, I'm going to put those questions together. As far as the fig tree goes, I think we see a lesson about sin and how sin is, is serious business. It's serious to God. Israel has become a wicked nation. 
and Jesus was fed up with them. Jesus cursed that fig tree because God had cursed Israel. They were going to receive judgment because of their sin. Secondly, from the Jewish people at this time in the fig tree, we see that God expects his people to bear fruit, doesn't he? John 15, 8, Jesus says, my father's glorified when you bear much fruit. Now, much fruit can include evangelism, but it's not limited to evangelism. We can bear fruit in many different ways by just living right, by studying and growing and doing good works, helping people, living a pure life. Bearing fruit is just the idea of growing in your faith, becoming a, a better Christian every single day of your life, doing good works for the Lord. God expects us to bear fruit, to do good works, to be the kind of people he's called us to be. That's a journey that we have to take every single day. We should look different today than we did when we first obeyed the gospel. If we don't, then guess what? We're not bearing fruit. We got to bear fruit. Israel had not, had not bore, bore fruit for God. They had become a wicked nation, even though God had blessed them and nurtured them and built them and did so many things for them. At this time, they are just as wicked as they were going all the way back to the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. They were not bearing fruit. So we got to bear fruit. We got to learn from that. As far as the temple goes, let me give you two things real quick. What we learn about what happened with Jesus at the temple is this. First, God hates corrupt religion, doesn't he? That's pretty clear. He hates corrupt religion. These people, and one of the reasons why they were so wicked and why they were going to get judgment from God is because they had corrupted the purpose of the temple. They had corrupted the worship of God. They were more focused on money and materialism than they were worshiping God. That was a problem. That's how wicked they had become. We got to learn from that. But secondly, a second lesson we learn from what happened at the temple is there are some things that as Christians we need to be angry about. Right? The Bible doesn't say it's a sin to be angry. The Bible says be angry and yet do not sin. That's what the Bible says, Ephesians 4, 26. And so there's nothing wrong with being angry as long as we don't sin when we're angry. And in fact, there are times when we need to be angry. We need to be angry especially when we consider all the sin that's going on in the world around us. Gay marriage, abortion, alcoholism, blaspheming the name of God, the name of Jesus, unlawful divorces. All that stuff should make us angry as Christians because it's sin and Jesus got angry about sin. But not only do we need to be angry about sin, like Jesus, we need to do something when we see sin. We don't need to just be angry. We need to do something to clean up the mess. We need to teach. We need to let people know what sin is and what sin is not. We need to do what Paul says, speak the truth in love. It's not enough just to be angry about sin. God expects us as his people to be holy and have righteous indignation and to do something, to do something in love when we see sin being promoted. That's what we learn from Jesus. And so that's... What's going on here with, on, on Monday? The, the key thing about Monday I want you to think about is Jesus cursed this fig tree, and this fig tree represents Israel. It represents the people of Israel. The cleansing of the temple is an example of how corrupt they had become. That's why Jesus had to cleanse it, and judgment was coming on Israel because of sin. And we're, we'll look more at that as we move forward. So 
Let's stop right there tonight. I appreciate you listening so well. We're going to spend the next uh, three classes going on looking at what happened on the next day because there's a lot that goes on between the dialogue of Jesus and the religious leaders. So thank you for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you.